A few years ago, researcher Jonah Lehrer wrote an essay about how the acquisition of authority affects those who exercise it. How the acquisition of authority affects those who exercise it. The essay, the essay was titled, The Power Trip, and you, so you sort of know where he's going with it. He calls it the paradox of power. The paradox of power, that is, the positive traits that help leaders accrue authority in the first place all but disappear once they get it. So instead of being polite and honest and outgoing, they become impulsive, reckless, and rude. And one business professor observed how incredibly consistent this is over all spectrums of uh, vocations. Give people authority, and they start acting stupid. They flirt inappropriately. They tease in a hostile fashion. They become totally impulsive. Some have even compared the feeling of power to brain damage, noting that people with lots of authority tend to behave like neurological patients with a damaged frontal lobe, which is the brain area crucial for empathy and decision-making. In one study... Psychologists asked members of a high-power group about speeding. And this group concluded, hands down, that it was okay for them to speed, but that it was important for everybody else to follow the posted limit. And their rationale was very clear to them. They're powerful, and powerful people are important. And so they always have a good reason for speeding. Lair concludes, even the most virtuous people can be undone by the corner office. I have a corner office. <laughs> I need to pay attention to this. <laughs> it's an essay that served as a catalyst, at least for me, to begin thinking about the word that I want us to consider this morning. Authority. Authority. So we're in a series of messages called Think. And it's really a message about, message series rather, about how to see the world the way Christ sees the world. So everybody sees the world. You know, it's like you have a set of lenses that you've been given. And this series is about training us in the discipline of putting on the eyes of Christ and thinking with the mind of Christ. And not just in the 75 minutes that we have here one day a week, but 24-7 and letting the, the mind of Christ dominate our lives. Not just here in our church relationships, but in our family relationships, at work, in our neighborhood, with our family, with our, uh, with our friends, with our colleagues, with our employers, with our employees. How to see the world the way Christ sees the world. Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then he says this, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So our mindset, our attitude, our vision, the trajectory of our lives needs to be focused in the heavenly realm as we function and live and breathe and work and serve here on earth till Christ comes. 
So today I want us to think clearly and think Christianly and think with the mind of Christ about authority. Authority. Uh, This word that basically deals with the question, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Now, you know, if you read the newspaper, you get the idea that leaders only know how to abuse authority rather than use authority. There's just too many stories about abusive authority, a husband who batters his wife, parents who punch their children or molest them or emotionally or verbally berate them. Too many stories about dictators who pillage their own people as well as political leaders who use their office and authority to line their own pockets. Our stomachs sicken at stories of authority abuse. Authority abuse in in business, in medicine, in government, in the military, in police work, in education, and yes, in ministry. And these horrifying stories give us the impression that Authority is really just, you know, a necessary evil, right? We need, we, we need authority, but since authority itself is evil, we don't want much of it, right? We, we need authority to constrain evil, but since authority itself is evil, we just don't want very much of it. That's kind of, that's kind of the paradigm, And we just think, oh, God, please come, Jesus, quickly to free us from all this. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be no sin, no evil, and thus no need for authority. Well, (laughs) I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that teaches us otherwise. I, I want us to consider the truth that authority is really a part of the glory of being an image bearer of God. That authority is is really built into us as a part of what it means to be fully human. I want us to consider a passage of Scripture that taken to its logical, spiritual conclusion, even perfect, sinless people need authority. Those who belong to the people of God Those who are citizens of the life to come. Those who are heirs of the new heaven and the new earth. We who call ourselves Christians. We really welcome and want and desire to the point of pleading for Christ's authority over our lives. Both in this life and the life to come. Well, the verses that I'm speaking of can be found uh, in... It's one seen in the Gospels, told in two of the Gospels. So we're going to look at both. We're going to read both. And the first is in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. You'll find Matthew 8, 5 through 13 on page 813 of your church Bibles. And it is the account in the life of Christ concerning the faith of the Roman centurion. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Matthew 8, 5 through 13, and then I'm going to go uh, straightway to Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. So let's start with Matthew's gospel, Matthew 8, 5 through 13. When he, that is Jesus, came to Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, 
my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now in Luke chapter 7, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is God's word. So after his famous sermon on the mount, Jesus enters Capernaum. Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was sort of Jesus' second hometown after Nazareth. And once there, he encounters a military commander in the Roman Empire, a centurion. Now, centurions commanded a hundred soldiers. Centurions were leaders. Centurions trained their soldiers, and they inspired their soldiers by example. Centurions fought alongside their soldiers on the front line. They scaled the wall with their soldiers. They were well-paid, battle-tested warriors. And this particular battle-tested warrior is found to have a soft spot in his heart for his servant, his son-like servant, whom the gospel says is paralyzed in torment. And did you get the different versions? I mean, it's the same account, but it's just a little different telling, which, which tells me that this truly happened because 
you know, if eyewitness accounts are exactly the same word for word for word for word, the only thing that you can conclude is that there's collusion going on. But here you've got a condensed version that Matthew gives. Luke says that the centurion did not even meet Jesus face to face. Did you notice that? Luke says that elders from the synagogue in Capernaum came to Jesus on the centurion's behalf. And they pleaded with Jesus to come and heal this uh, servant. They, the elders you know, uh, appealed to Jesus. This centurion's worthy and he loves our nation and he helped finance the building of our synagogue. You know, he gave to the all-in campaign as if that mattered to Jesus. They really talk him up. And note the irony here. On one hand, Caesar is Israel's powerful master, and yet here his representative humbly seeks the help from those whose land he occupies. <laughs> and on the other hand, some Hebrew elders put in a good word for the very person who stood for all that Israel hated. Well, Jesus is, of course, ready to help. That's why he says, I will come and heal him. And Luke says that while on their way to the centurion's home, another delegation appears. Friends of the centurion intercept Jesus before his arrival. Oh, no, no, no. He didn't mean for you to actually come. Remember what Luke says? When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Again, note the irony. The elders are saying, he's worthy, Jesus. He's worthy. But the centurion says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And then he said something to Jesus that was as profound as the miracle itself. Did you catch it? Only say the word. Only say the word and let my servant be healed. Jesus, you don't, need to, you don't need to come over. You don't need to pray over him. You don't need to lay your hands on him. Just say the word from where you are. And my servant, and, and let my servant be healed. Do you get that in Luke's gospel? You say the word and let him be healed. Wow. Now, why would he say that? Well, here's why. The centurion, I mean, he's a military man. You know, us non-military types, we just don't quite get what he gets, but he gets it. I get it. I get it, Jesus, because I'm in the machinery of authority. I'm a link in a chain from the foot soldier to Caesar. You know, I give orders because I get orders. I'm a man of authority, and I'm a man under authority. And when I give an order, it's as if Caesar himself gives the order, and that order is obeyed without question and without hesitation. And I don't have to say, please, and I don't say, thank you. And I don't have to follow up and say, hey, did you get this thing done that I asked? I don't do that. I give the word. And when I give the word, it's done. I am the image of Caesar. You must be the image of God. 
So say the word and let my servant be healed. And when Jesus heard this, I mean, he just kind of surveyed what was going on. And this, wow, overwhelmed his face. You know, wow. Here, an agent of Israel's enemy displays a depth of spiritual understanding and faith that he had not found in all Israel. And both Matthew and Luke say, and he marveled. And he marveled. It's, it's um, well, there were two times in the Gospels when Jesus, when it is said that Jesus marveled. Most of the time when you see the word marvel in the gospel, it's people who are marveling at Jesus. But twice in the gospels, uh, two events, in this event, Matthew and Luke, Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus marveled at the unbelief of residents in Nazareth. <laughs> And he marveled. The most unlikely person made Christ marvel. This Gentile, this man of war, skilled in the brutality of Rome's military tactics. Someone serving Caesar whose presence ensured that Israel served Caesar too. I mean, not exactly the resume material you'd look for in a hero of faith. Jesus says, I've not found anyone in Israel with this much faith. Whoa. Oh, this is amazing that you have this much faith. I mean, how come, how, how come you all don't have that much faith? That kind of a thing, you know? <laughs> Go. Let it be done as you have believed. And Scripture says, and the servant was healed at that very moment. And we never hear from these two again. Ever. We don't. They just, they just kind of come and go from the pages of God's Word. But they leave us with a lesson about the nature of authority. What authority is as Christ intends it. And this lesson shows up uh, with two questions that I want us to consider in the time that remains. One question uh, we learn from Jesus. The other question we learn from the centurion. The question from Jesus is this. What does he teach us about the proper use of authority? What does Jesus teach us about the proper use of authority? You see, if it's true that abusive authority damages and disables the lives of others... It's also true that authority rightly used restores and heals. Properly used authority empowers us to bring our lives to their full potential. And Matthew takes painstaking effort to convince us that the authority of Jesus is restorative. It's full of healing. It's based in truth. It originates with God. And so that's why we read at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, that the people were amazed because Jesus taught with authority. That's why in chapter 8, 
the centurion recognized Jesus' authority. And that's why in Matthew 9, verse 8, sins were forgiven based on Jesus' authority. Or in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, healing happened by means of Jesus' authority. Even in Matthew 28, where the resurrected Christ claims all authority, we know that you know, Jesus is not some ranting control freak who just likes being bossy. What makes Christ a trusted authority is that he puts his authority, he puts his in-chargeness to the service of others. We see that in this account, don't we? My servant is in agony. Jesus says, well, I'll come and I'll heal him. He didn't even wait to be asked. He just went and he had the wherewithal to help. Don't you see, authority properly used is for the flourishing of lives. And Jesus is the definitive master at the proper use of authority. Jesus is the definitive king of Psalm 72, 12 through 14. Note the use of authority in these verses. Psalm 72, 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Now just pause at that verse for just a moment. Notice how the king uses his authority. He uses his authority to redeem their life, which means their lives are freed by means of authority. So the weak and the needy are saved and redeemed and delivered due to the king's authority. They are free due to the king's authority. It's one of those paradoxes of Christianity. It's one of those you've got to lose your life to save your life paradoxes. The freer we become in Christ, the more we long for and desire and hunger for his authority over our lives. Don't you see? So his authority over our lives frees our lives, which causes us to long for more of his authority over our lives, which continues the freedom. And it's a wheel of freedom and authority, movement toward the destiny God has us. Truth frees us the truth of the authoritative king. Truth frees us. The truth of the authoritative king causes us to flourish. True authority summons freely chosen obedience to Christ. So here's where it gets personal. Does your use of authority over the domains in your life, do they help others flourish? I mean, as I'm looking out at our congregation, we've got a lot of leaders at, at home, at work. Do others flourish because of your proper use of authority? You know, are you, are you, do you use authority Jesus style or do you, you know, use authority you know, Jabba the Hutt style, right? It's all about me, all about me,
Hey, look up here. WWJD does not mean what would Jabba do. Okay? Does the exercise of your authority lead to the flourishing of others? To the flourishing of your children, your clients, your patients, your customers, your students, your players? How does your stewardship of authority add value to those you lead? How does it enrich their lives? Dare you ask? Well, that's what we learned from Jesus about authority, you know. But let's move to the centurion here before we wrap up. Because he, he prompts us to ask another question. And it's this. What does marvel-producing faith look like? What does marvel-producing faith look like? What does marvel-producing faith look like uh, in terms of, of Christ's authority? And there's three words to answer this question. Rest, comply, celebrate. Rest, comply, celebrate. Let's talk about each of those words. First, rest. Rest. Rest in His authority. This is, this is balm for my soul because you know, sometimes I have been a jerk as a leader. Okay? And I fall short. And whenever I fall short of what it means to be a man of God and to properly use authority, how Christ intended, you know, the evil one is right there, stands ready to accuse me. You know, you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a pastor. You know, the best thing you can do is quit. The best thing you can do, you'll never make it. You have failed. A failure is all you're ever going to be. Satan the, the word Satan means accuser, and he does it day and night. He accuses me, and he accuses you too. And thank God that I serve a higher authority than that accuser. Thank God that Christ's authority has the final say over my life. Christ's authority protects me. Christ's authority defends me. Christ's authority guards me. And I can rest in that. Are we resting in that? Are we resting in the promise uh, of Christ's authority? A promise that's echoed in uh, 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you resting in that? Are you resting in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1? The Apostle John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus advocates for us, and he advocates for you. Satan accuses and accuses, and Jesus advocates and advocates. And his advocacy overwhelms and overcomes Satan's accusations. 500 years ago, a pastor named Martin Luther uh, wrote these words uh, in a commentary over the book of Galatians. And I just rest, I just rest in the biblical truth uh, underneath these words. 
It's titled, How the Devil Comforts Us. When the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I'm a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. Oh no, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, oh no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say that I'm a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet, for Christ died for sinners." And as often as you accuse me of my sin, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer on whose shoulders and not mine lie all my sins. So when you say that I'm a sinner, Satan, you do not terrify me at all. You comfort me immeasurably. Thank you. I rest in that. The authority of Christ overpower and overwhelm the authority of any other voice, even my own voice. You are not what others say you are. You are not who you says you are. You are who Christ says you are. Rest in that. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Well, it's only natural then that the one who, in whose authority we can rest in his grip of grace, I mean, why would we just not naturally comply with his authority? Rest in his authority? Comply with his authority. I get that from verse 8. Those words that echo even today. Just say the word. Just say the word. I recently spoke with someone who took his father on an honor flight and in one day uh, saw the great memorials in Washington, D.C. Memorials of soldiers who gave their lives for our lives. And these veterans would be the very first to say, don't call us heroes. <laughs> we were just carrying out orders. And those of us non-military types, those of us civilian types, we just don't quite get that, you know? We just don't quite, that just doesn't quite compute. I mean, I mean we're a, a church community in a un university community, and, and we kind of like to committee things to death. And, and so, you know, we're suspicious of authority systems. But at the end of the day, this centurion has much to teach us about what it means to be all in for Christ. While they never met face to face, Luke says, the centurion could very well have been a face in the crowd, watching, observing, is he for real? And he found out. He found out there was something about the life of Christ. There's something about the words of Christ, the presence of Christ, the personality of Christ, the royal authority of Christ. There was something about Christ that compelled him to freely submit to Christ. Harry Blumers has written an excellent book 
called The Christian Mind. Harry Blamiers was a student of C.S. Lewis. He wrote, it is important never to confuse the notion in the head that a God probably exists with the motion of the will that flings a man on his mercy. There exist people who are quite ready to admit that there may be a God, but who have never felt the slightest impulse to humble themselves before him. For the Christian, God is something much more than the author of the answer book to that volume of problems we call the mystery of life. God is not the bolsterer of our human wisdom. God is not the buttress of our self-sufficiency. God is the destroyer of our human self-reliance. And his name does not head the list of contributors to the fund for extending the empire of Randy. Rather, his signature seals the death warrant of my ego. The centurion got it. Just say the word. And we need to let those words challenge us, church family. So the question's on the table. Do you have the faith to be a just say the word disciple of Christ? Just say the word, Jesus. Just say the word, and I'll do it. Just say the word, and I'll follow it. Just say the word, and I'll obey it. I'll start it. I'll stop it. I'll give it. I'll say it. I'll carry it out. Just say the word. To my last breath, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I want to be a just say the word disciple of Christ. And you can call it stubborn faith or immovable faith or persevering faith or prevailing faith. Call it whatever you want to call it. This faith declares single-minded allegiance to the Lord. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Just say the word. As I think about the families in our congregation, I think about individuals. You know, you challenge me, you encourage me, because I think so many of you here have made that, that pact with God. And that's really kind of what it is. It's just, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that nobody's going to mess with as far as you're concerned. And it's why your life is flourishing, even in times of trial and suffering. You, you have predecided, no matter what, even in the pain and the tears of terminal illness, divorce, unemployment, bankruptcy, the death of my child, I am all in. Just say the word. Nothing matters more than Christ. Nothing. Many of you know what I'm talking about. You do. But not everyone Some of you are afraid of what you might lose by giving Christ unchallenged authority over your life. And so you hold back. You compartmentalize your life. You know, your, your life consists of a series of cubby holes. I've got my religious life. I've got my personal life. I've got my professional life. And your faith is kind of a cubby hole thing. It's not integrated into the whole. It's not a God thing. Or... Whatever Christian circle you happen to be in, you try to figure out the acceptable level of commitment and what that is, and then you try to meet that. Call it the tyranny of the average. And so your faith commitment is just a crowd thing, not a God thing. And I really wonder if that's 
What's keeping some of you from growing deeper in your walk with God? Church family, God wants all of your heart. Not 50%, not 75%, not 95%. 95% of your heart is 5% short. And you know, I can recite Matthew 6, all day long. I can tell you all day long, if you'll just see Christ first, He's going to take care of you both in this life and the life to come. He will. He's good on His Word. I can tell you that all day long. But ultimately, you're going to have to take the test yourself. You're going to have to taste and see that the Lord is good yourself. You're going to have to take some steps of faith. You're going to have to walk out on that limb of faith and see if it holds. You're going to have to taste and see that the Lord is good. My exercise class that I go to, my group class, it's a body pump class, love my class coach. She and her husband are always there. She's a wonderful instructor. She ask if there's anybody new and welcomes them and then kind of tells the agenda for the day and shows us all, you know, what exercises we're going to do and kind of directs us through the movements and counts the movements out and everything. She does, she does everything, but she's never lifted my weights for me. Never. She's never lifted my weights. She, I wish she would. She's never even offered. Never even offered. What is up with that? She doesn't do my crunches for me. She doesn't do my squats for me. I have to do that. Right? I have to do that. I can pray for you, but I can't pray your prayers for you. And I can do my best to explain with everything that's in me what this means. But I can't read your Bible for you. And I can't serve for you. And I can't give for you. And I can't trust God for you. So church family, when are some of us, when are we going to become a just say the word follower of Christ? When will the commitment-free life stop? When will casual Christianity stop? When will low-cost, convenience-oriented, consumer-centered Christianity stop? When will it stop? It will stop in a moment like this when we say, enough, half my life is gone, and I still haven't locked in the fundamental commitment that God asked me to make to be fully devoted to Him with all my heart. If you want Christ to transform your life, if you want marvel-producing faith in Christ, you must rest in His authority, and you must comply with His authority. And here's the thing. This is the beauty of, of group exercise, a group experience. When we do so together, then what's next? Oh, a celebration. That's what we see in verse 11. We celebrate Christ's authority over our lives. 
I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So Christ here has clarified who the true people of God are. Many will come from the east. Many will come from the west. The true people of God are from every race and nation and language and tribe and tongue. What determines the people of God is not race, it's faith. And this Roman centurion, this outlier, prepares us for Matthew 28, where Jesus claims all authority, I have all authority, therefore go to all the nations. All authority, all the nations. I authorize you to make the invitation that there's room at the table. There's one table and there's room for everybody. Now, I don't know how it was like going to grandma's house for you. But at grandma's house in Eldorado, Kansas, there was grandma's table and then there was the card table. You know what I mean? Robbie, Randy, and Ricky around the card table. Okay, right? There's not two tables at God's banquet. There's one table. And you are seated, notice, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With. We join ranks with these heroes of the faith. Because what determines the people of God is not race, it's faith. It's faith. In fact, Luke's version prepares us for the book of Acts. Remember, he wrote Luke and Acts, where, where in Acts, another centurion, Cornelius, comes to faith as Peter preaches the gospel. And then, by the time we get to Acts 28, the gospel is proclaimed in Rome and the celebration is around the table. The kingdom of God is a party. God enjoys you. And we're flourishing all because of authority. And there's music around the table. And, and a huge orchestra of voices and instruments are a part of that party, you know. And orchestras need conductors. Because there's no single right answer to questions like, what shall we play at the banquet? And how shall we play it at the banquet? And how shall we interpret this music at the banquet? And well, each mus musician might have a perfectly reasonable opinion, but their opinions will be different even in heaven and will almost inevitably be incompatible with one another. And so it's no good for each musician to do what's right in his own ears. And you know, the brass section, if they were to insist on playing fortissimo and the strings have chosen pianissimo and if the orchestra is to perform coherently, if the musicians want to, to make music and not make noise, somebody has to have the authority to decide. Huh? Did you notice how effortlessly Terrence played that cello? Huh? If you want me to torture you, I'll get on that thing. Well, it's a new version of church discipline, right? <laughs> Let's not. Oh, my goodness. He played it playfully. He was free because of authority. The authority to learn and the authority to follow. See? 
And as a result, we flourish. We flourish. I'm not talking about coercive authority. I'm talking about flourishing authority. Because someone has the authority to decide. And that someone, church family, is the one to whom all authority has been given. The banquet has been brought about by one who himself trusted his heavenly Father and who went to the cross because his Father gave the word. And on that hill, Jesus hung, crucified for our sins. And another centurion saw him and testified about him. This centurion felt the earthquake and witnessed the darkness of the day and saw Christ die. And he testified, surely this man was the Son of God. And it's by grace through faith in him that we flourish. Oh, church, Christ leveraged authority for our flourishing so that we can rest in His authority, comply with His authority, and celebrate His authority. So, Lord, say the word, and your word will be done. Amen.